Welcome to Future of Freedom. I'm your host, Scott Bertram. Future of Freedom is a production of America's Talking Network. You can check out all of our great podcasts at americastalking.com. To support great podcasts like this one, please donate by clicking the link in the show description. We're joined today by John Hood. He is president of the John William Pope Foundation. You can find out more at jwpf.org and find John on Twitter at John Hood NC. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Scott, for having me. We begin these conversations in pretty much the same way each time, asking our guest, John Hood, in this instance, to tell us what is the John William Pope Foundation and why does it exist? The Pope Foundation is a grant-making foundation created by the Pope family. Uh, It was started in 1986. The Pope family is in the retail business. They have uh, owned for over now two generations, perhaps three generations, uh, a series of retail stores across the United States, largely in the Southeast, but not entirely. Their primary brand now is called Roses Stores, which is a series of, uh, is a chain of retail stores. You might imagine them sort of in between a Walmart or Target on the large end and a Dollar General or Family Dollar on the small end. So they're very interested and invested in business in America. And the Pope family believes very much in giving back in investing philanthropically in enterprises and causes that will make their community, their state, and their nation better off. That's what the Pope Foundation exists to do. We give money in what we might call traditional community philanthropy. We support soup kitchens and homeless shelters, the uh, North Carolina Opera Company, the North Carolina (laughs) Ballet Company, Uh, organizations at universities, university research, university instruction at various institutions. And we also spend money uh, trying to improve and uh, enliven the public discourse in North Carolina and in the nation with our grant making and public policy. One of the efforts of the grant making of the Pope Foundation is the Future of Freedom Initiative, which by no coincidence is also the name of this podcast, Future of Freedom. We've been talking to many guests on this program over the past months, all part of the Future of Freedom Initiative. What is this all about and how did the idea come come to pass? Why is it needed now? The board members and staff of the Pope Foundation have, again, long-held views about and interest in public policy development in uh, in our country. We support organizations uh, and have over decades that advocate traditional American principles of limited government, free markets, personal responsibility, uh, federalism, competition and choice in public services, a variety of areas that listeners uh, to to the podcast have heard about from other groups that may be our grantees. Some of our grantees work on federal policy, some on state and local policy. Some are based at or, or oriented towards university campuses or, or elementary and secondary education. So we have a broad interest. But in recent years, we've grown increasingly concerned about uh, the direction of the, the freedom movement in the United States the sense that America's particular uh, approach to freedom uh, is being challenged by those who argue that it is either outdated or that it was never a good idea. (laughs) There are, in fact, some folks that we might put on the nationalist populist right, broadly defined, uh, who critique not just today's America, 
but even the founding, that it was based upon what are now called classically liberal ideas about individual rights and freedoms, and that that was a mistake. And we should never have uh, launched the American experiment along those lines, and we should have used more traditional, more European-style thinking about what it means uh, to be free and what free governments should be doing. So we've been concerned about this conversation for years. We're not concerned about the existence of a conversation. That's good. We just want to make sure that those who advocate uh, American freedom, traditionally understood, are part of the conversation. Uh, There has oddly been a lot of talk lately about uh, nationalism as an integral part of uh, the successful governance of any any polity in the world. And there is something to that. But... Uh, American conservatism and America's understanding of what nationalism means is fundamentally different Hmm. from what someone in Central Europe might see or someone in East Asia might see as the appropriate definition and application of nationalism. Our nationalism in the United States has never been ethnic. It's never based on a specific religious denomination. It just simply we've never had a monarch since the revolution and rightly so. And so a lot of the sort of what what is called the blood and soil nationalism or thrown and altar nationalism uh, that we see in European countries, for example, uh, simply doesn't have an analog, or at least we think shouldn't have an analog in American political uh, culture and certainly in the conservative and free market movements in the United States. So we've been worried about that, wanting to make sure that that voice, that argument is being made effectively. And that's one of the reasons we started this Future of Freedom initiative. In American politics, uh, conservatism, understood by Americans, is really a a, a movement that reflects a desire to defend and extend the liberal traditions of the American founding. And this is a confusing set of words. Uh, (laughs) American conservatives conserve liberalism. Of course, people at the time in the American Revolution didn't really use these terms. Mm -hmm. And today, these terms have been defined and redefined so many different times that that people don't always mean what what they think they mean or what other people think they mean by these terms. So we we have argued with the Future of Freedom Initiative and the grantees that have been working in this area now for, for several months is to think about words, think about the right choice of words and how to articulate this vision of American freedom uh, that meets and responds to the challenges of the 21st century, and that also will make sense to Americans. In past decades, if freedom were were under threat, there was a a coalition of conservatives that existed to protect freedom and conserve freedom. Perhaps people know this as as fugitism, these different portions of the right coming together to help protect freedom. Is that coalition, is it under strain these days in a different way? I think that that fusionist consensus about what American conservatism was is under strain. I don't think it's gone. In fact, uh, I'm often puzzled by the, the, the kind of rhetoric we see about the future of the conservative movement, the future of freedom in America, as if that old three-legged stool of economic conservatives and social conservatives and foreign policy conservatives it no longer exists and people don't think about it in those terms. You know, if you actually look at how uh, people who identify themselves as conservative politicians, if they're in office, how they govern, 
particularly at the state and local level, that's where foreign policy doesn't really come into play. But if you look at the other two legs of the stool, that's the way most uh, conservatives govern if they're in control of state legislatures or in control of of, uh, the governor's offices in various places. To the extent that Republicans or conservatives have held power in Washington in recent years, they typically are economic and social conservatives. In other words, they defend and advance the free market, Mm -hmm. and they also believe in in, uh, traditional values and and virtue. They may disagree about the specific ways to uh, address those problems, uh, specific ways to inculcate virtue, and how much the government should really be involved in that. But that kind of interrelationship between the politics of freedom and the politics of virtue is still the way most conservatives talk. It's the way most conservatives govern if they're in office. It's the way most conservatives run for office. And it's the way most people in, in, in America who think of themselves as right of center would define their views. Again, lots of disagreements about specifics. But in general, uh, while I never liked the term fusion, and in fact, the, the people who are associated with founding the, the fusionist de- definition of American uh, conservatism, people like Frank Meyer, who was at National Review for, for many years, uh, and my friend Stan Evans, M. Stanton Evans, mm-hmm. who, who I wore briefly when I was young, they didn't like the term fusion and fusionist, but they were essentially articulating this idea that uh, in America, at least, conservatism really is best understood as this interplay between the politics of liberty and the politics of virtue, understanding that government's primary job was to defend liberty, to defend freedom, people's right to govern themselves, people, the national freedom, and the individual freedom to make decisions for themselves. That is the primary value when we're thinking about political action, but it's not the primary end. The primary end is to live a virtuous life, to lend a fulfilling life for our communities and societies to be healthy, and that requires a significant devotion to inculcating virtue. Uh, we just you know, need to be careful that we're using the right means to do that. John Hood is with us, president of the John William Pope Foundation, talking about the uh, Future of Freedom Initiative and more. You uh, have said that when discussing tough issues, we have to start with defining terms. In doing so, you wrote a piece over at National Review recently, Why America Needs Freedom Conservatives. How would you define the term freedom conservative? Is it different than the way most people would think of just the term conservative? It is similar to the way people usually thought of in the in the modern context, in the 20th century context, as an American conservative. But of course, the specifics change, particular issues or rise to the top or, or fall to the bottom. And the, the ways we use our words do change over time. So I'm arguing that freedom conservative is a reasonable way to describe those who believe in limited government, in free trade and free markets, in the rule of law, uh, and the separation of powers, and separation of powers not just in Washington, but the, the proper role that state governments and local governments can and should play in America. We're, we're supposed to be a very decentralized political system. We haven't been lately. Some conservatives, or at least people calling themselves conservatives, have been arguing for a greater amount of power at the federal level mm-hmm. and intervening, and I, I think that's contrary. So I think freedom conservative is a good term because – People will associate the term freedom with the sense of being personally free. Uh, I should 
in the sort of classical defin- libertarian sort of definition, I should be free to do whatever I want to do as long as it doesn't take away someone else's right to do the same. That's, easy, that's easier said than done. It's harder in real life to sort of operationalize that principle, but it is generally the principle people associate with freedom, and I do too. Hmm. I, I use a, a series of definitions that a former professor, a late professor at University of Oklahoma, Rufus Fears, often used, which I quite like. He argues that there's really, in a political context, there's three kinds of freedom. There's national freedom, there's political freedom, and there's individual freedom. National freedom is what lots of people think of when they think of nationalism, or perhaps better put, patriotism. The idea that a particular community, a particular national community, should not be uh, under the control of some foreign power. Mm-hmm. Uh, political freedom is the right to vote, but not just that, but also the right to be a citizen more generally. Uh, the the roles that different levels of government play. Political freedom also includes things like protections for minority rights, uh, making sure that there's open meetings of governments and public records so the people can look at them, making sure the legislative, executive, and judicial branches don't intrude on each other and that the federal government doesn't intrude on the proper sovereignty of states. So that's what political freedom means. And then the individual freedom is the freedom to do as one chooses. This is something that Aristotle wrote about, of course, <laughs> long ago, that he said that the, the principle uh, of a free city-state, of course, in his world, was liberty, but that there were two definitions, and one of them was political. There are going to be elections or some kind of process where the people get to control who's going to be in, in power over them, and then there's going to be this individual liberty to do as one likes, and that freedom really consists of integrating these things and if you add national freedom to that, uh, I think that is a, a lively and, and not easy way of thinking about freedom. Right. And I think that in America, we have had for much of our history the maximum amount of all of those three things. Lots of people have lived in societies that were nationally free but oppressive. You know, There was no foreign power oppressing them, but it was pretty miserable. And there have been people who've lived under empires – the Roman Empire is a good example. In some cases, the Roman Empire came in. It denied the national freedom of a, of a people. But the Romans brought a rule of law and some level of personal freedom, perhaps, that had not previously existed. I think America's great story, imperfectly realized, of course, over the time and getting better in some ways, mm-hmm. is that we have promised all three of these kinds of freedom and have delivered more than really any other uh, society on earth has is, is it utopian to think that all three are possible at the same time is there by nature a give and take among those three it's not utopian to think that all three can be present at the same time it would be utopian to think that they can all be perfectly calibrated against each other <laughs> you know so for example you and i have personal freedom we should and we happen to be neighbors and in good faith i take certain actions that turn out to uh, intrude on the quality of the water from your well. And so we have a dispute, and in a civilized society, we go to court about it, and you end up winning the case, even though I'm convinced I'm right. And at some level, that is that there is a 
the only recourse I might have if I lose in court is maybe elect someone, try to help some get someone elected to the town council who next time will write an ordinance that would be more to my liking. So that's political freedom and individual freedom sort of interacting with them, each other in ways that there is no perfect sort of ideal state that we would ever reach. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, all three can be present in significant uh, quantities. And that's not utopian at all. That's America. Yeah. That, that's how America has lived through most of its existence. Not enough individual freedom sometimes, but plenty of the other two, or not enough political freedom uh, during periods of time when women couldn't vote or African-Americans couldn't vote or Native Americans couldn't vote. Uh, so obviously the, the, there's nothing perfect about any of this, but generally speaking, the American conception that American can be free, that the people can be free to elect their own representatives, and that individuals can be free uh, to make their own decisions, even sometimes if the majority doesn't like it. That's all to get, all these three things together form a distinctive American conception of freedom that we at the Pope Foundation are seeking to defend. John Hood with us here on the Future of Freedom podcast. I want to ask a bit about how you contrast or find these differences between your idea of freedom conservatives and other sort of ideas on the right. First of all, if freedom is the is the overriding bond for conservatives in the freedom conservative movement, where do you differentiate and draw the line between uh, libertarianism and the libertarian idea of freedom versus the freedom conservative idea of freedom? Well, there's certainly adjacent ideas, and I have long been a, a writer for a libertarian magazine, Reason, mm-hmm. and I'm sometimes described as a libertarian. I do d- depart from some libertarians on some very important questions. Uh, some libertarians go so far as to really be anarchists. I think that's preposterous. It's not the way human beings have ever lived or could ever live. And I also think some libertarians uh, with a, a large L tend to be distracted into fairly minor questions <laughs> rather than having good responses, good arguments, good policies to advance about major issues. I also tend to disagree with many libertarians about foreign policy. But it is certainly true that uh, libertarians are articulating this vision of freedom as a central uh, purpose for uh, the way we structure our government. Uh, our government in America was never designed to pass bills. <laughs> I mean, we pass bills, but the, prep, the, the presumption is against passing new laws. Mm-hmm. We make it purposefully difficult. And so I think that libertarians are right about that. They're also right about the free market and how it tends over time to maximize the uh, opportunities for the vast majority of people to get ahead. Uh, and that in particular attempts by people on the right these days to uh, argue against free trade, uh, are th- those arguments are poorly reasoned. They're not based on sound economics and they're not based on sound history. So very much uh, sympathetic with and, and in alliance with libertarians on many of these questions. When it comes to the disputes we're seeing right now between what I call freedom conservatives and what they call themselves national conservatives, this issue of trade and perhaps to a lesser extent immigration is a significant dividing line. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that in America we have the right to buy blue jeans from whoever wants to sell, them, sell us blue jeans. <laughs> I think this is sort of a basic thing. In fact, the American Revolution was in no small measure touched off by various attempts by the British Empire to control the consumer choices of Americans who wanted to buy, for example, goods from the West Indies, goods from those who lived in or worked in uh, countries other than Britain. 
And uh, I just think that's core to what it means to be free is to be able to make these kinds of decisions for themselves. It, I think it's exceedingly odd to say you're for freedom and then also to say that you're, you're, you're for, fair, quote, fair trade instead of free trade. What you really mean is that Americans are paying too little for their clothes. They're paying too little for their food. They're paying too little for their electronics, and they really ought to be paying more. And you ought to just say that. And if you don't mean that, then let's talk about it. But that's what most protectionist arguments come down to is, you know, these goods and services, they're just too cheap. We've just got to, we've got to prefer domestic uh, producers of these things, which by definition pretty much either sell them more expensively or don't make them as well. And I don't think that's a conception for the future to advance the future. I don't think that improves the standard of living of Americans to make them pay more for less uh, for, for goods that aren't as, as high quality. And I also think it's inconsistent with American history and principles. I, I want to continue the conversation on freedom conservatives, but I do want to follow up on that because the, the counter argument there is if you are able to, to buy more American produced goods, uh, there are more American jobs available. It helps strengthen our, our sometimes smaller communities or mid-sized communities. Uh, you know, going back into perhaps Rust Belt communities and being able to rebuild them around some sort of manufacturing ideal. What about arguments that that returning manufacturing, returning these sorts of positions and, and goods to American production will will in the end, you know, forget about cheap goods for a second, but in the end will will help strengthen America as a whole? Yeah, that's the traditional argument has been made since the 19th century. It's typically made by rather wealthy people who don't want their companies to face foreign competition, um, and it's sort of transparently self-interested. Manufacturing is very healthy in the United States. It's continued to grow tremendously. I just looked at the numbers in my home state. We sell a lot more manufactured goods today in terms of the dollar value of those goods adjusted for inflation than we did in the 1970s. What we don't do is employ as many people in manufacturing. And that is primarily because of automation. It's not because of trade. In fact, many people I know work in manufacturing, and they work in manufacturing because a, a internet, some company from that's based in another country has invested in the United States. We also have American companies, American-based companies that invest overseas. But increasingly, even these distinctions don't really mean anything if, if companies have owners that are all around the world and companies have customers that are all around the world and companies have vendors – that are all around the world, then disentangling all this is very difficult to do. There may be a, an iPhone that is assembled in China, but some of the main components were created in California hmm. or Texas. And a lot of these, even the, the claims that people make about this, simply uh, ignore the complexities and the, and the cross, the, the goods and services, the intermediate levels, just the back and forth and back and forth over the borders. As far as the question about com specific communities, we, of course, always in a, in a dynamic economy that is creating jobs and opportunities for people, there are always going to be communities that grow and communities that don't grow as much. This has been happening throughout American history. It used to be our textile industry was based in Massachusetts, and the firms ultimately migrated southward, places like places where I live, mm -hmm. um, and the communities in Massachusetts had to adjust to that. Uh, and so we see some of that going on that is always going to go on. But ultimately, Scott, it comes down to uh, someone arguing that Americans should pay more for goods that aren't as high quality so someone else can benefit. 
And if you want to spell it out that way and argue for it, we can talk about whether that makes economic sense. But a lot of times people don't want to spell it out that way. They don't want to make it as clear as I just did Mm -hmm. because it would be unpopular if you make it clear. You know, our solution to a a community in, in, let's say, a Midwestern state that has lost a, a major manufacturer, our solution is to force Americans to buy goods from them so they can have their their factory. <laughs> and those goods, by definition, won't be as good or they will be more expensive than what you could otherwise get. And that's our policy. That every time you state that very clearly, you're going to lose support. John Hood with us, president of the John William Pope Foundation. He has a piece at nationalreview.com, Why America Needs Freedom Conservatives. I want to return to that portion of the conversation because you've entered into uh, not a direct debate, but a but a larger debate about about terms and phraseology and what to call ourselves. You say freedom conservatives. There's an essay out on this week that we're, we're talking that says conservatives should stop calling themselves conservatives. There's a new political identification needed. The piece argues that government will have to become, uh, in the hands of conservatives, an instrument for renewal in American life. Is it time for conservatives to embrace enhanced government power to advance our goals? I don't think so. I don't think most Americans think so. I did read the article you're talking about, uh, and I found it fascinating and, frankly, utterly disconnected from reality, (laughs) as if – as if uh, you know, American civilization was doomed, Western civilization was over. I think maybe that's a direct quote from that article. I think most Americans would find claims like that preposterous and a waste of their time to listen to. And I, I don't know that I found reading the article a waste of time because I think it was insightful about where certain uh, small groups of people are in their heads. But in reality, I would be fine if advocates of the the nationalist populist movement that has been developing in the last several years in America, if they would uh, say, we're not going to use the term conservative anymore, I'll be happy to take it back. (laughs) Just like I would be be happy if the left uh, would stop using the term liberal, which they don't really mean, uh, and go with the terms that better describe their views, because I'll take the term liberal back too. I think that, uh, as I've said earlier, American conservatism is largely about conserving the uh, civic republicanism and and classical liberalism of the American founding. Civic republicanism having a lot to do with virtue and commitment to your community, and uh, classical liberalism having to do with free markets, limited government, individual liberty. If uh, if if I can use those terms, particularly conservative in these days, just use the term conservative, and those who advocate nationalism and populism don't want to use them anymore. I say I'll make that deal immediately. (laughs) A follow-up to that essay from another writer said, perhaps we should not be conservatives anymore, but we should be called the Restoration Party, that the concept of freedom, that the concept of family and community, and in some ways constitutional order, has simply been lost. And so trying to conserve what has been lost is, is nonsensical. We have to work to restore things. Is it necessary to reflect? Uh, refine and redefine what this fight is about? I think it is necessary to clearly define what the fight is about. Uh, And we've been talking about freedom, of course, as I said earlier. I just mean in a political context, uh, the way to evaluate uh, a a policy in part is, does it advance freedom or not? But that's just whether a bill is worth doing or not. 
the purpose of having a of living in a free society is to allow people to flourish and the way that most people will flourish is to embrace uh, timeless virtues including the strength and importance of the family as the sort of building block of a society which i strongly believe in i, I think the the other essay i read your other the other essay you're citing as well and again what strikes me is if you ask the average american have have Americans given up on the family? They would think you were weird. <laughs> that most Americans, most Americans, still wish to and in fact form families and have children, and that is what they believe is a significant part of what it means to be a human being, and they still do that. Now we could argue properly that there are threats to this conception of the family that we have rampant divorce, we have out-of-wedlock births are too high. We can make all of these arguments without overstating the case as if the American family or the or people's belief in the American family is over. This is, again, ludicrous. It's not at all related to how people actually live their lives. And I think that any conservatism worth its name has to be based on a clear-eyed perception of reality as it exists. I think that is the one of the ways that, that one of the connective tissues that brings various groups together under the name conservative is this the acceptance of reality. Human nature is a fixed thing. Human beings are fallen creatures subject to temptation. That no matter what you think, if you try to engineer a better economy with central planning, it will be worse than if you let people make their own decisions. That's a reality that has been established in human experience for generations. And I think all of these realities inform what I'm describing as freedom conservative, and they clash with what some call national conservatism. I, I just think it is fundamentally disconnected from reality. A couple more questions for John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation. There is so much focus. There is such a spotlight, John, on what happens in Washington and what the president is doing and who controls the Senate and the House. And rightfully so on some level. But this this future of freedom, this this fight that, that we discuss on the local and state level, is that where the action really begins? I think it is. And I think furthermore, it's where most American governance is occurring. I think it's where most American governance should occur. Hmm. I think the federal government is far too large. But setting aside that that philosophical point, just as a practical matter, Congress doesn't pass much legislation anymore. Major policy shifts are rare. Mm -hmm. uh, now, as a conservative, you know, I sort of like that because most policy shifts are bad ideas, <laughs> but even good ideas don't get passed out of Congress. And the extent anything good or bad happens, it is increasingly by presidential diktat hmm. or, you know, Supreme Court decision or something like that, which is the opposite of, of a free, how a free society should be governed. So I think for practical reasons and for philosophical reasons, those who, who want to champion uh, American freedom should be looking at states and localities as the main places to do that. Uh, and I think one of the defects of what is called national conservatism is that it is, in fact, so focused on, on national or federal action, national or federal discussion. Uh, that is, again, not really the, the genius of the American system. It's not drawing power to Washington. It is trying to ma to maximize power and decisions made at the state and local level. That means if you live in Indiana and you read about the, the, the legislature in New Mexico, you may be appalled at something they pass. Of course, it doesn't apply to you. You live in Indiana. <laughs> so there has to be a system in which Americans 
can uh, go in some different directions and yet all live within the same country, within the same nation that has does a few things at the national level, but otherwise let states and localities make go in their own various directions and find their own uh, balance between this, this idea of political freedom and this idea of individual freedom. John, this uh, Future of Freedom podcast from America's Talking Network is part of the Future of Freedom initiative. These conversations that we're having today and in the past and in the future, how do they push forward the idea of the Future of Freedom Institute? Are these conversations, podcasting in general, these conversations that people can listen to, whether they're driving or mowing a lawn or whatever they're doing, uh, is that reaching an audience that needs to hear these messages? I think it is. I think that most Americans don't listen to long-form p- podcasts about political or philosophical issues. And that's fine with me because you know Americans are busy doing <laughs> all the things they want to do and all the things that make America great. But I think people who are interested in public affairs, uh, I think they will be well advised to listen to podcasts like this one, to listen to ideas uh, and, and conversations about them rather than, for example, thinking that you can have a meaningful conversation about serious issues in tweets mm-hmm. you know, or just in sort of hot take kinds of, of garbage that we see so much in the, in the mainstream media and on social media. Also, unfortunately, a lot of our television content, I used to work on television, was on television for decades, and much of the TV content, three or four minute segments, are just nonsense. They're just entertainment. There's no actual conversation. There's nothing deep enough to really, you're you're not diving deep enough to find a valuable gemstone at all. You're Mm -hmm. just digging in the mud. And I think that podcasts allow you to do that deeper mining, find those gems, find that vein of gold that helps us better understand where we are and better chart a course for our future. John Hood, president of the John William Pope Foundation. You can find out more at jwpf.org. Find him on Twitter at John Hood NC. But, you know, Twitter, not great for these uh, these conversations. You want to come back here to the Future of Freedom podcast. John, thanks so much for joining us today on the Future of Freedom podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm Scott Bertram. For more episodes of the Future of Freedom podcast and other fine podcasts from America's Talking Network, check out americastalking.com or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening to Future of Freedom, presented by America's Talking Network.